previously on the Metal Podcast. Of all the men who beat women, oh, no. Phil Spector, he is he is one. Of, he's the heavyweight champion. Oh, is that why they he dubbed his crew the Wrecking Crew? I think so. It, it, well, that's what he Here's called his fists before he took it out on Ronnie. You know, he had new releases by the birds that were often accompanied by large ads and trade magazines that simultaneously plugged the records and upcoming TV appearances. Like, they had the ultimate, like, synergy going on. They probably all owned, like, all these subsidiaries. Even, um, you know, Buffalo Springfield, all those guys, they managed to find themselves appearing as guests on an, uh, gosh, an impressive array of network television shows. So the whole idea behind, we'll just call it the hippie music scene. Yeah. We'll just call it that for the sake of argument. What was that? It was rebel. Like it, it's, it's pretty much you're rebelling against your parent. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the point of it. And they, they had to convince the youth that that's what it was because the, the music is lame. It's it's not more exciting than like Chuck Berry or um Johnny Be Good. Yeah, or uh like Bill Haley in the Comets. Even the, like the Big Bopper. Like the the Big Bopper. <laughs> there were there were artists where their their songs had had some kick to it. See, like I understand punk rock and and to you know another a greater extent heavy metal. Like there is a, like there is an aggression and evolution like it, it feels like, like all of the emotions that you're having, just in audio form. That's how it is. But with like, um, hello darkness, my old friend. <laughs> it doesn't sound very rebellious. They were all from the East Coast, and then they all met up on the West Coast, and then they suddenly started being these anti-war protest bands. But none of them had any real anti-war songs. They just kind of said, yeah, we're against this thing. And their their main vehicle for being against it was just doing drugs and doing nothing. Like, they, they had platitude. Yeah. They didn't have They're any like- real demonstrations and they didn't have any real power. But these musicians had the real power. They had the power to genuinely brainwash a generation and get them addicted to drugs by tricking them into thinking that this terrible music that's really popular will be good if they just take drugs. And now for part three. And welcome to the Metal Podcast, part three. Part three of the Laurel Canyon Deep Dive. I am DJ, and I am joined with, as always, AC. How are you doing? Are you ready for part three? I'm ready. I got my detective's hat on and my detective's pipe and my detective's coat and my detective's whip. What I about your ready. little detective boots? I got my detective boots. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I don't know where you'd like to start, but I wanted to kind of uh, refresh or maybe uh, enlighten some people and let everyone know that everyone who makes art has an agenda. And all you have to do is look up who's making this stuff or who's funding it to realize who's setting that agenda. And it doesn't mean that this agenda is always nefarious or bad because yeah, I do. (laughs) But the whole point of propaganda is to get you to think emotionally. And you have to ask yourself, what is this trying to make me feel? 
And, you know, this is what the show is about. We want to, we're not just breaking down metal bands. We're, we're, we're going in, we're researching, we're giving you some history, some entertainment and perspective that hopefully will give you, get you closer to the truth. Because as we've noticed, the ruling class really views you as a resource. You exist to provide for them, you know, and, and ultimately what they want to do is make, make it easier to manage the people. That's their goal is making people easier to manage and technology and and uh, and a lack of, you know, a moral code or having a nefarious agenda really makes it easier for that technology to be used against us. And as we've seen with the Laurel Canyon deep dive and the record companies and all these interesting figures and we're getting close to Halloween and these spooky figures. It's it's important to to go back in time and see where did all this stuff start because there is a lot of correlation to the current world and the current events that we are experiencing and it's important to know that I think we found where this stuff really may not have started but where the next phase kind of started and and today we really want to focus on kind of uh, another interesting figure John Phillips we've mentioned him before the uh, the Papa John, not the pizza guy, not but the, the pizza uh, guy, the Wolf King of L.A. And yep. we're going to let you know a little bit about and, the Grateful Dead. And also, if if oh. you have been listening to the show, nothing good comes out of anyone in the music industry being called the Wolf. <laughs> no, go back to a previous episode, episode seven. Yes, classic, the real, episode. the current Wolf. Yes. <laughs> Sure is. But you know, as as I was researching John Phillips, I kind of found, and like I said before, the deeper you go, just the more things that kind of come up. So I wanted to start um, kind of, I wouldn't say this is in the middle, but I want to say by, so by the year 1970, John and Michelle Phillips had divorced. And many years later, Michelle would reveal that their time together had included at least one episode. Just one episode of domestic violence. Just one. Uh, one that, what's that? Just one. Just one. And she said she was, you know, she's always been reluctant to discuss it, but she said uh, it was serious. I ended up in the hospital. That's all I'll say about it. The The union, you know, yielded John a second daughter, Gilliam China Phillips. We've talked a little bit about her. But on January 31st, 1972, John Phillips married for the third time to actress and Crowley aficionado Genevieve Waite. And on the wedding guest, there were two interesting figures. In the wedding guest, there were soon-to-be Governor Jerry Brown and soon-to-be Lieutenant Governor Mike Kerb. So there seems to be Moonbeam, a few more, more people Moonbeam, in the Laurel Canyon. As he was known. Oh, Moonbeam. Yes, that was Jerry Brown's name. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, Jerry Brown was he wasn't just a uh, uh, died in the wool liberal. Like he was a true believing hippie. Yeah. Like he, he was, he was deeply embedded in the Laurel Canyon crowd. Cause and you don't just get invited to a big musician's wedding. <laughs> so, and if you look at the history of California, it's it's only been like four families who have been in charge of that state. 
So these, this is a, another government connection. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting too, because, um, his father apparently was very, uh, Republican party operative. Uh, he was aspiring politically, uh, initially had no luck getting himself into public office, but then guess what he did to get the cover, the governor's seat in 1959, he did that simple trick of changing the R next to his name to a D Classic strategy. and was reborn as a Democrat. So he held the seat for two terms through, uh, to 1967 and then was replaced by a guy who had employed the same trick in reverse. Um, Replacing the D after his name with an R. Do you know who that guy was? Uh, go go ahead and tell me. It was, of course, Ronald Wilson Reagan. My goodness. Gov- <laughs> yes. Yes, it was very interesting. That, uh... So then we go to, um, and then, of course, Reagan, like you just <laughs> had said, he governed the state through 1975. You didn't say that, but what you did say was, that there's four families running California. So yes. after, and, and also, handed- <laughs> and for for anyone that doesn't know this, I, I think the the generations that know this is shrinking uh, by the day. Ronald Reagan wasn't just an actor; he was the the president of, I believe, the Screen Actors Guild. Like he he was he was a political operative in Hollywood, so he was. In in the entertainment industry, he was a political operative that became the governor of California, that became the president of the United States. But he wasn't just an actor that became the president. Wow, I actually didn't even realize that. So it might be a smaller number than you even think. So Reagan would govern the state through 75 and after which he handed the reins back over to the Brown family. How convenient. And this time to the younger Edmund Brown, who, like his dad, had decided to, um, decided that he was a liberal Democrat. And apparently, according to a consensus opinion of the media at the time, <laughs> Jerry was an ultra-liberal extremist whose politics fell somewhere to the left of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. Very American. Yeah. Um, so... During Laurel Canyon's glory years, Jerry Brown resided in a home on Wonderland Avenue. Uh, it was actually within walking distance of the Wonderland Death House in the homes of numerous singers, songwriters, and musicians. Um, yeah, so his circle of friends in those days, as widely reported, included the elite of Laurel Canyon's country rock stars, including Linda Ronstadt, with whom he was long rumored to be romantically involved, Jackson Brown, and the Eagles. Jackson Brown, who earlier we had covered his, I believe his father was part of the World War II reconstruction. uh, I I think his happiest son became a rock star, like we we had explained about the record labels and their kids. I bet he was very, very happy. In fact, (laughs) he was probably so happy he helped him do it. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah, his, his father was stationed for his job assignment with Stars and Stripes newspaper. Yeah, I believe he was, uh, his father may have been in the OSI, but he was part of the European uh, Reconstruction. So again, not just some, some drill sergeant out uh, in, uh, uh, what's, what's, the, what's the base? in um in palm springs maybe i guess it's 29 palms i don't know 
There's a famous military base there. Someone screaming there's at me. Edwards Air Force Base. Ed, sure, sure. He's not a drill sergeant at Edwards Air Force Base, which that would make sense because there's a lot of, that's in Southern California. That's not too far yeah. from LA. Right. That's but, like in Lancaster. So then, uh, so this brings us to a guy named Mike Kerb, who I had never heard of before, but apparently we, we should kind of know about him. So he, um, at times, the lieutenant governor, time, of the lieutenant governor. Okay. Yeah. So at various times, Curb worked as a musician, composer, recording artist, film producer, and record company executive. Boy, that, that is a, quite the uh, <laughs> quite the resume for a lieutenant governor. Yes, yeah, that's interesting, huh? Yeah, he has um, he composed or su- supervised more than fifty film scores and wrote more than four hundred songs. Yeah, so. Um, he also had the notable distinction of serving as the musical director on the, on the notorious documentary feature Mondo Hollywood, which ostensibly chronicled the merging Laurel Canyon sunset strip scene. I'm sure they got that very accurate. And it was filmed from 65 through 67. The film featured representatives from the Manson family. Uh, that's Bobby Boussoulet, the Manson Bob, family. Bobby victim. Boucher? Yeah. Bobby Boucher. <laughs> No, not from the the water water boy. boy. The the Manson's family's victims, Jay Sebring, the freak troop, Vito, Carl, Suzu, and Godo. Godo was actually Carl, uh, Vito, and Zuzu's baby child who actually died. We didn't get into it. Probably don't have time for it. But and uh, as well as and uh, Laurel Canyon's musical fraternity, Frank Zappa, along with his future wife Gail Slotman. Uh, it also appeared. Uh, it also featured acid guru Richard Alpert, Jerry Brown's father Pat Brown, and Princess Margaret, a good friend to John Phillips, and a rumored lover of Mick Jagger. Who the heck is Princess Margaret? <laughs> I don't. I have genuinely <laughs> never heard that name outside of you uttering it. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I guess that was kind of like a little background to which was as noted in Mondo Hollywood was the creation of filmmaker robert carl cohen um and as it turns out uh this robert carl cohen has a very interesting background for a guy destined to capture um on film the emerging night emerging 1960s countercultural scene because in 1954 cohen served in the u.s army signal corps uh the following year he was on assignment to nato following that he served in special services in germany the very next year, he produced, directed, edited, and narrated a documentary short entitled Inside Red China. Two years later, he wore all the same hats for a documentary entitled Inside East Germany. Um, and why I'm kind of talking about this is because there's something interesting I'm going to read in a second. But a few years later, he put together another documentary entitled Three Cubans, a decidedly unsympathetic take on the Cuban Revolution. So. Cohen was proudly uh, proudly proclaimed that he was the first, and here's the meat of the stuff. So he proudly proclaimed that he was the first, or at least among the first, Western journalists, filmmakers allowed to enter and shoot footage in each of those communist countries. In the case of Cuba, and likely the others as well, he did so under the direct sponsorship of the U.S. State Department. Uh, Mr. Cohen would like us to believe that he undertook those projects as nothing more than uh what he outwardly appeared to be an independent filmmaker but but, but he did it with the assistance <laughs> of the US State Department 
Yeah, so he's just an individual in, 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 independent filmmaker with the assistance of the mm. U.S. State Department going into yeah. these basically forbidden communist countries. First one on the in the Western world to do first it, first one. Right. Okay, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. not suspicious. But go on. No, no. Um, this is like someone. Honestly, this is the <laughs> equivalent of someone like walking up to you naked, covered in blood, holding a machete, and like trying to start a conversation as as though like they're just waiting for the bus like this is more than just suspicious yeah and it doesn't get less suspicious i was gonna skip over it but i might as well talk about it because well, because because here here's the thing like what what makes us suspicious and the thing that we what really kind of ties this whole theory together is how many people are connected via high-ranking government positions because the military is not just a government position, but military officers are, are essentially special citizens. Like you, like becoming an officer is, it's, you know, not a small task and especially being a high ranking officer. So if this, this guy got into those countries with the help of people in those communist states, I, I could go, Hmm, that's weird, but whatever i don't know who knows what but with the help of supposedly the enemy of these so there's two things uh one the united states used this person as uh, an infiltrator but if the united states said hey we're going to send you into these communist countries to film and spy are those countries that stupid that they would believe <laughs> that the U.S. State Department is facilitating a filmmaker to come in and film. Oh, yeah, there's no agenda there. Or is it possible that there are people in the State Department that are affiliated with communist countries? I think you're right. And, and, um, what was interesting too is the Los Angeles Times in a lengthy critique of Cohen's countercultural film published on October 1st, 1967. They offered up some interesting and long forgotten uh, facts about the documentary because um, in, a, in a lot of violent, sudden ways, real death did intrude during the 18 months of picture making. Uh, three people were killed in automobile crashes. Um, one of one them of, was... Was one of them the president of the the John Phillips uh, fan club. Um, uh, was that Jane Mansfield? Uh, I don't know. Well, she was a celebrity in a montage of premises or premieres, um, which remained in the final movie. Um, so she died before it came out. The other two that died in car crashes was a bonafide philosopher. Um, and they were scheduled, scheduled to appear, but died before filming. A writer who was to play himself died of drugs. A three-year-old child died of a fall through a trap door, although he and his parents are still in the picture. That's Vito and his wife and their, their son. And then a pilot who agreed to fly in the film died of a mid-air crash. And all six people, uh, and all in all six people, none of them old, none of them in bed, died before Mondo Hollywood was released. Uh, several buildings were also destroyed. 
and uh, the Goodyear Blimp, which provided the platform for some spectacular aerials in the move in the finished movie, crashed one day after its chores were done. So that's an yeah, awful it, lot of uh, deaths. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd, have you ever seen the movie The Twilight Zone? Uh, maybe. I'm aware of it. I don't know if I get the, uh, well, uh, well, this is, this is, this, this, yeah, this is just an example. (laughs) So the the movie came out in the early eighties, but one of the actors in it died during a stunt where a helicopter crashed. Well, not one of the, I am aware of that. Didn't the chopper cut him in half or something? Something bad. But the thing is it was, it it was just, I I know it involved the, the, the chopper landed on him. I don't know the, the grisly details, but. Things like that occasionally happen where like a stunt goes wrong and, you know, one or two people are pulled mm. into it. Cause he, he, he and one or two other actors were killed as a result that mm. happens. It's unfortunate, but what you're describing is a series of unfortunate accidents. Yeah. Oh, we, another murder, suicide, another car crash, a, a, a plane crashing. <laughs> All right, like one of those things is okay, but like not all of them. Come on. That's a lot. Yeah, it's um yeah, I once heard someone say only fools believe in coincidence and I I understand the the meaning behind it because the reality is yes, coincidence does happen, but when it happens over and over, it's not a coincidence anymore. It's a pattern. And in a countercultural film, like where, where, uh, where someone with connections to the state department was granted entrance <laughs> into communist countries. Yeah. So, and then kind of to maybe to kind of finish off my curve, he, uh, he worked alongside many of Laurel Canyon's young Turks, including Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, who we've talked a little bit about before. And it's unclear whether Jerry Brown and Mike Curb crossed, uh, passed during the Laurel Canyon glory years. Uh, However, but, but as fate would have it, they were to cross in 1979 in Sacramento, oh. California. Yes. So Mike Kerb, as it turns out, after being encouraged by Ronald Reagan to venture into politics, was elected to serve as governor Jerry Brown's second in command. The um, Republican. Uh, let me finish. And so it was that these Mike two men, Kerb, both- a Republican was the, the second in command to Democrat extremist, Jerry Brown, his, right. his words, his, I'm not yeah, calling yeah. him an extremist. He called himself one. Yeah. And what's more interesting too, at the time, uh, governor Brown had little time to spend on actually governing the state of California. Um, cause he tossed his hat into the presidential ring. So he spent much, much of the time out of the state on the campaign trail. And this allowed Lieutenant governor curb as acting governor of the state to sign into law, a withering array of reactionary legislation that was very far removed from what the people of California thought they were getting when they elected governor moonbeam. Oh, you were right. They did call. Uh, so this arrangement allowed the nominal liberal of the Laurel Canyon tag team, Jerry Brown, to keep his hands clean, even as his administration moved far away from its originally stated goals. And even as he made little effort to rein in his underling. Yeah. Um, I, uh, yeah. I see this right here that, 
uh, he was acting governor. He vetoed legislation and I- issued executive orders and making appointments. And right. the the California Supreme Court upheld uh, he upheld his actions as uh, his constitutional prerogative. Oh, that's good. That's good to know the system's working. So this is yes. this next part is where we get a little a little real <laughs> if it hasn't already. All right. Uh, so so Brown so Brown and Curb weren't the only up and coming politicos who managed to find living space in Laurel Canyon uh, back in the day. So in July 2008, the Washington Post revealed that a former reporter and novelist by the name of Alex Abella had written a history of RAND. That's all caps R A N D, which was founded more than 60 years ago by the Air Force as a font of ideas on how that service might fight and win a nuclear war with the USSR. So Abella focuses on Albert Wolstetter, a uh, (laughs) mathematical logician turned nuclear strategist who was the dominant figure at RAND starting in the early 50s and whose influence has extended beyond his death in 1997 into the Bush administration. Wolstetter epitomized what became known as the RAND approach, a relentlessly reductive, determinedly quantitative analysis of whatever problem the independent nonprofit think tank was assigned, whether the design of a new bomber or improving public education in inner city schools. Uh, So the RAND Corporation is a lot of things, but independent has never been one of them. And also in the post book review, we find that um, unnamed persons of prominence. And we also find perhaps not too shockingly at this point that Laurel Canyon was a portal of child pornography. Oh joy. That, uh, that doesn't surprise me really. What, yeah, especially so, with what we learned about Frank Zappa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, let's kind of continue on here. In January of 2011, the San Francisco Chronicle reported on the passing of Ron Patterson, the flamboyant, free-spirited creator of the Renaissance and Dickens, uh, and Dickens fairs. Uh, he died uh, January 15th at a friend's house in Sausalito after an illness. He was 80. Uh, it's not important, but as a staff writer, Carolyn Jones noted in the article, Patterson's creation was sort of a medieval precursor to Burning Man. And Burning Man is, of course, a rather explicitly occult ritual first performed on the summer solstice of 1986 and now performed every summer in Nevada's Black Rock Desert before an audience of over 50. Black Rock Desert. Hmm. Yeah, sounds like a good place. Hmm, yes. All right, so I guess this is where you get the, the start of the child pornography stuff, but... I'll kind of continue. In the beginning, the Renaissance Fair was an experiment in Mr. Patterson's backyard. Uh, In the early 1960s, Mr. Patterson and his wife, Phyllis, who were both interested in theater and art, began hosting children's improvisational theater workshops at the Laurel Canyon home. Uh, Okay. And um, let's see. In any event, there's something obviously creepy about children's workshops being hosted in a small, tight-knit tight-knit community that was home to a child pornography ring 
and more than its fair share of pedophiles. So, goodness gracious. Uh, another <laughs> curious character uh, who took up residence in Laurel Canyon was producer Paul Rothschild, who played a key role in shaping both the sound of the doors uh, and love. And oh, what's that? Okay, I thought you cut out again. Okay, oh, go no. keep going, keep going. Okay, it's interestingly in June 1981, Sports Illustrated publisher Philip Howlett penned a short piece to introduce readers to new writer Bajarn Rostang. Born in Lincoln, New York, Rostang grew up in various places in Connecticut where he attended what he recalls as an even dozen schools. I got my BA and master's in English from the University of Connecticut. He says, Then I did a part of my PhD at the University of Washington before going into the Army Intelligence Corps. In 1959, um, we had Paul Rothschild, who later became producer for The Doors and Janis Joplin, to give you some idea of what the unit was like. Um, it was in all likelihood, like countless other intelligence units, uh, designed to churn out shapers of public opinion, whether actors, novelists, newsmen, or in this case, sports writers and producers of popular counterculture. Um, gosh. Keep going. So I may have skipped around a little. Oh, whatever. You know, we don't need to hear everything. Just the important thing. Just the important stuff, huh? Yeah. Yeah, because I was wondering if uh the Paul Rothschild was related to the Rothschild, the Rothschild. World Bankers. <laughs> I don't know if uh it's the same uh people, but hey, you know, maybe maybe cousins. Who knows? You never know. It seems like it's always like the same people. It does seem to be uh, a, a select few people. Just, it's like, uh, you know, why is it always you three? You know, like that the thing from Harry Potter. Whenever there's, whenever <laughs> yeah, there's a trouble. problem, why is it always you? So I actually, I actually skipped, I skipped an important thing about the Wolstetter guy. Go on. I, I, it was like the main thing about the Rand Corporation. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back. One second. Stay with me here. Uh so the Rand Corporation, we find that it was not so much Wolstetter himself as his acolytes who had a major impact uh in Washington. And most of these acolytes need little introduction because you have former assistant secretary of defense Richard Perlay or Pearl who once dated Wolstetter's daughter. You have former U.S. Ambassador, President of the World Bank, and Deputy Secretary of Defense, Paul Wolfowitz. Ah, Paul Wolfowitz from uh, the Bush administration, I believe. Yes. Former U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, Afghanistan, and the U.N. hold on. Richard Pearl was also part of the Bush administration. Yes. Okay. I think all the people I'm about to read are probably from the Bush administration. Okay, okay. Yeah, so uh, former U.S. ambassador to Iraq, Afghanistan, and the U.N., Zalme Khalizad, and Andrew Marshall, who has served as the director of the United States Department of Defense's Office of Net Assessment for 40 years, and who served as a mentor to Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz. Okay, yes, I I know all three of those people. Those were all... uh, people that were pretty instrumental in uh, mm-hmm. Middle East wars 
during the Bush administration? Yeah, so I'll continue in the latter half of the 1950s and into the early 1960s, while Wolstetter was with the Rand Corporation and also serving as a professor at UCLA, uh, while his wife, Roberta, also worked as an analyst for Rand, Albert and his followers, the men who would serve as the architects of U.S. foreign policy during the George W. Bush administration, regularly met in a heavily wooden a uh, heavily wooded neighborhood in Los Angeles known as Laurel Canyon. Yeah, we got that. Uh, as Greg Herkin wrote in his review of Abella's book, those bright, eager, ambitious young men had sat cross-legged on the floor with their mentor at his stylish house in Laurel Canyon. Roy Cohn? Just as, <laughs> what's that? Roy Cohn? Oh, no, uh, someone else? Go on. Someone else, yeah, yeah. Um... Go on. Okay, so here, here, here's where we get the, the, the child porn stuff. Uh, Paul Young, uh, writing in LA Exposed, revealed that in the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was another curious group calling Laurel Canyon home. The most infamous male madam throughout LA's sordid history would have to be Billy Breyer, the wealthy son of an oil magnate and part-time producer of gay porn. Right. Briars, yeah, Briars was said to have a stellar group of customers using his brothel at the summit of Laurel Canyon. In fact, some have claimed that none other than J. Edgar Hoover, the founder and chief executive officer of the FBI, was one of his best clients. Interesting. When Briars fell under police scrutiny in 1973, allegedly for trafficking in child pornography, officers obtained a number of confessions from some of his hustlers and some of them identified Hoover and Clyde Tolson as Mother John and Uncle Mike and claimed that they had serviced them on numerous occasions. Gross. Um, So it appears then that the top law enforcement officials in the nation were also a part of the Laurel Canyon scene, along with the various other unnamed persons of prominence. Uh, Yeah, and that's where, you know, we get the Laurel Canyon was a portal of child pornography. And then, yeah, so that was a precursor to the whole Renaissance Fair and why I brought up the Burning Man stuff. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, that's, uh, that was very disturbing. But <laughs> yeah. again, the, the, more, the most interesting thing about that were the, the people connected to the Bush administration. Because those weren't just people that mm-hmm. were just small timers. Like, Paul Wolfowitz was instrumental in the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. And I remember Rumsfeld from the Rumsfeld rules and he was always, you know, taking, he was also, uh, instrumental in the invasion of Iraq. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, all, yeah. Was Donald Rumsfeld, was he the one that there were no knowns and no unknowns? Was, was that, (laughs) was he the one that did that? He might've been, I think that was his thing. There, there were no, there are no knowns and there are no unknowns. Like but he all, kind all of this, seemed, yeah. all this, like <laughs> the lies to, to make people, uh, uh, think that all the government obfuscation is just part and parcel of dealing with the government. Oh, well, that's just how it is. Like, these things don't make any sense. These justifications don't seem very realistic. Oh, well, I guess there's no knowns and no unknowns. Oh, well. We don't know what we don't know. We don't. Mm-hmm. Go on. 
Well, this is where we could take a little fork in the road because we can go back to Big Papa John or we can kind of continue on with another interesting character who took up residence in Laurel Canyon and who had obviously a profound uh, influence on the scene. I'm going to guess that you're talking about one Charles Manson. I am not. Oh, okay. Well, then color me shocked, Pip. I'm talking about Augustus, not Augustus Gloop. But Augustus Owsley Stanley III, the premier LSD chemist of the hippie era. I do not know this gentleman. Augustus. Oh, I wonder why. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no one, not Ken Kesey, not Richard Alpert, not even Timothy Leary, did more to turn on the youth of the 1960s than Owsley. Uh, So Leary and his cohorts may have captured the national media spotlight and created public awareness, but it was Owsley who flooded the streets of San Francisco and Laurel Canyon with consistently high-quality, inexpensive, readily available acid. Um, So just to give you a quick little, like, idea of what this guy was doing, um, as was, like, the custom with big events in the mid to late 1960s, particularly in the Northern California area, Especially like our our Altamont concert that we had mentioned last episode. It was all drenched in acid. Before you 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 go further, tell me what this guy's name is one more time. Augustus Owsley Stanley. Okay, so Augustus Owsley Stanley the first was a politician from Kentucky. And he was a Democrat that was the 38th governor of Kentucky. And he was also represented in the state, uh, represented the state in both the U S house of representatives and the U S Senate. Okay. <laughs> what about the second one? Uh, no, I don't know about I'm the, talking second about the one. third. I know you're talking about the third, <laughs> okay. but this guy was the descendant of the, mm-hmm. of a Kentucky governor. So again, this is a, another person connected to high-ranking members of government and he's uh a chemist making acid chemist making acid mm-hmm. and a lot of it okay a lot uh, so <laughs> as as was also the custom at the time um you know acid was provided free of charge by mr augustus owsley stanley the third also known as the bear the bear so the bear <laughs> that's his professional name his professional was, name. yeah yeah and i and i i think i know what, where you're going with this but go okay. on but uh that the so-called human being staged in january of 1967 for example owsley had kindly distributed 10,000 tabs of potent lsd uh for the monterey pop festival which john phillips helped create and was a, a big part of uh, for the Monterey Pop Festival, just five months later, he had cooked up and distributed 14,000 tabs. And then for that Altamont uh, concert with that ritualized satanic killing, <laughs> he did likewise. Um, so, And by the way, the, the, his father, Augustus Owley Stanley II, was a government attorney. Mm-hmm. So, uh, his grandfather was the governor of Kentucky and both a congressman and a senator. And his father was a government attorney. That's how you know the acid you're doing is good stuff, right? Yes. <laughs> That's uh, why you should be doing it. 
Well, I mean, are you going to get into this guy's education where he didn't have a formal education, but then he was able to be a test engineer with Rocketdyne in LA and he worked on the SM-64 Navajo supersonic cruise missile? Uh, I think I'm, I don't think, no, what? Yeah. So yeah, so <laughs> yes, yeah, he he enlisted in the Air Force as an electronic specialist. He served for 18 months uh it, working at both the Jet Propulsion Lab and Edwards Air Force Base rocket oh, engine test facility, and he was discharged in 58. During his service, he secured an amateur radio license and a general radio telephone operator license. Goodness. Yeah. So again, this guy wasn't just the the child of government figures. He was also a member of the military. This is pretty interesting too, because um, according to according to Martin Lee and Bruce Schlein, writing in Acid Dreams, <laughs> Owsley cultivated an image as a wizard alchemist whose intentions with LSD were priestly and magical. Of course, they they made it like religious. <laughs> oh my gosh! And Owsley is revered by many as something of an icon of the 1960s countercultural uh, counterculture. A man motivated by nothing more than an altruistic desire to turn on the world. I'm good to turn on the world. So stupid. His rather provocative background and family history suggests that his intentions may not have necessarily been so altruistic. They, really, this guy, this uh, this drug dealer, wasn't so altruistic. <laughs> yeah, and I think you already kind of talked about it. But uh, what I have in front of me is that he was the son, naturally enough, of uh, the second who served as a military officer during World War II aboard the USS Lexington, and thereafter found work in Washington D.C. as a government attorney. The grandfather served as a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1903 through 1915. And as a governor of Kentucky from 1915 through 1919, and as a U.S. senator from 1919 through 1925, and Senator Stanley's father, a minister of the Disciples of Christ, served as judge advocate with the Confederate Army. Owsley's mother was a niece of William Owsley, who also served as a governor of Kentucky from 1844 through 19 or through 1844 through 1848. Who and who lent his name to Owsley County, Kentucky? So apparently, Kentucky's only had four families <laughs> govern them too. <laughs> that too isn't that it, Mitch, Mitch oh. McConnell is Kentucky, isn't he? Oh, I think you're right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Uh, let's see here. We could talk about uh, stuff from 1855. I'm not going to do anything. Do that. I don't think we need to go that far back. No. So I'll go back to Owsley, uh, the third, I think this is the third, where he apparently had no trouble at all gaining acceptance to the University of Virginia, which he attended for a time before enlisting in the U.S. Air Force in 1956 at the age of 21. During his military service, Owsley was an electronic specialist working uh, in radio intelligence and radar. And then after his in the Air Force, he set up camp in Los Angeles area, uh, area. To study ballet. Okay. And you already talked about the, uh, maybe you didn't. During that time, he also worked at Pasadena's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which was undoubtedly the primary reason for his move to LA in 1963. 
Uh, then he moved again to Berkeley, California, uh, which <laughs> happened to be ground zero uh, of the budding anti-war movement. The anti-war movement, which did nothing and accomplished nothing. <laughs> yeah. The anti-war movement. I, I also want to comment on this. Okay. Because we, we've, we've talked a little bit about this, but this is what the hippie movement is most known for is, you know, give peace a chance, you know, make love, not war. But it was largely an unsuccessful, toothless anti-war movement. What it really was, was a celebration of debauchery as we've gone over many, many times. It's Mm -hmm. just about orgies and drug use. That's what it is. It is not a anti-war. I know I said that grammatically incorrect. It is not an anti-war movement. It never was. I believe that was tacked on later to, to make the hippie movement seem Mm. less malicious than it actually was because you have these musicians who, uh, all come from the East coast, arrive in the West coast, who seemingly all knew each other or ran in the same social circles as children. And then out of nowhere, they're all the biggest groups in the world. They all encourage massive drug use. And then, oh yeah. And then, uh, yeah, we're (laughs) anti-war. Because a lot of these bands, they started before the Vietnam war really hit its peak. Yeah, you're right. So I don't, I don't believe any of that. I believe all of that was, was just, uh, that was just added on later as narrative control. Cause this whole thing is, it, it is a, it's basically an exercise in, in mind control. And to give these people any kind of validation, you have to do something to grant them sympathy. And if the whole point of the hippie movement was like, yeah, these people got together, listened to bad music, took drugs and had uh, various sexual partners while doing these things, they would be hard to sympathize with. But if you give them a, a very basic very like bare minimum stance of being anti-war. Well, nobody is really pro-war. I mean, there are a few people that are, but you know, those are all people that are members of the media, but just at, at the core, there is no person that's just like, man, I can't wait till someone goes to war. Ah, oh, man, <laughs> wouldn't that be so cool if like war started tomorrow? I, I, I love war. You know, like some people, they like puppies and others like chocolate. <laughs> now nah, me, I love a full fledged hot war. No one, oh, no yeah. one's like that <laughs> where now you just make the hippies. Well, they're anti-war and then this is how they protested it. You know, they just, they wanted to live in the now and oh, you don't like hippies. All, well, you like war then. Yeah. They were oh, just, they were just anti-war. They were anti-war. They were <laughs> yeah. just. They were against the fascist system that wanted to send them to war for no reason, man. Oh, you must be pro those things. Okay. There you go. Now you've trapped someone. So now, now instead of 
And most people won't say like, no, I'm anti-hippie and you're being dishonest. They'll just say, okay, whatever, whatever, fine. Hippies had a point in some regard. There you go. Oh, they had a point. Therefore, all their points are valid. That's how it works. Yeah, would you say that these people get a little emotional? <laughs> I, you know, I might. I might. I would say yeah, so, a, a little overly, in fact. And, and perhaps instead of Owsley moving up to Northern California to lead the anti-war movement or be a part of it, uh, apparently he may or may not have briefly attended UC Berkeley, which is where he allegedly cribbed the recipe for LSD from the university library. And then he soon began cooking up methadrine and LSD in a makeshift makeshift bathroom. What is lab. methadrine? I don't know what that is. Is I I'm think guessing it's, just it's meth. related to crystal meth. I, well, I guess it's not meth. Well, Cause, cause, crystal meth is methamphetamine. Meth is methamphetamine yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's probably so, derived from something like that. Because I, I, I want to say created meth. <laughs> maybe I, I want to say uh, like MDMA is derived from methamphetamine. I wouldn't know. Possibly. Uh, yeah, I'm sure so, the drugs are all related too, like these people. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same chemicals. <laughs> it's all the same chemicals. Same people, same chemicals. And the same people do the same, same chemicals. Same places. <laughs> same yeah. same vices. So what's funny is that um on February twenty first, nineteen sixty five, that uh methadrine and LSD lab got raided by state narcotics agents who seized all his lab equipment poor guy and charged stanley with operating a, a I gotta, meth lab i gotta look this thing up by the way uh what what is this thing what is it called uh the methley what is it methadrine meth uh m-e-t-h-e-d-r-i-n-e okay i mean I, I i typed it into a search engine the first thing that popped up was methamphetamine nice and, yeah so i don't want keep, you to know about methadrine well, you, you keep reading and i'll <laughs> find good out stuff. okay yeah. keep, all right talk. so he was charged with operating a math lab meth lab and as barry miles recounted in hippie berkeley was awash with speed and owsley was responsible for much of it uh nevertheless owsley walked away from the raid unscathed who would have thought and with the help of his attorney who happened to be the vice mayor of berkeley he even successfully sued to have all his equipment returned. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny to me. That's awesome. He Meth- quickly put that equipment is to work. Methamphetamine, oh, by the way. What'd you say? Meth- methadrine is just methamphetamine. It's just methamphetamine. Okay. Yeah. All right. So he quickly put that equipment to work that he successfully sued for to get it back and produced some 4 million tabs of nearly pure LSD in the mid 1960s. And they gave it all back. They gave it all back. Here you go, buddy. Just give us a here's cut. here's your four million tabs of <laughs> drugs back. Sorry, <laughs> sorry about that little kerfuffle. We didn't mean to. Well, we well, didn't, we didn't know who you were. Sorry about that, champ. We didn't know. We didn't know what he was going to do with that equipment. <laughs> yeah, who who knew? Yes, you did. No, we did. I, he might have used that to 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 cure herpes. So. All right, and then, all right, why are we talking about this guy, too? We mentioned the Grateful Dead in the beginning, you know. So immediately after oh. the raid of February 1965, Owsley and his frequent sidekick, sidekicks, the Grateful Dead, moved down to the Watts area of Los Angeles. Of all places, 
to conduct acid tests. Hmm. What type of tests involve acid tests? I wonder. Is that like, uh, like, you know, uh, like a little, uh, bro- broadcast warning is that kind of, you know, this is just a test. Beep. <laughs> that acid that, tested that, progress. <laughs> is that like one of those? Cool. Yeah. And then, it, then it says you have three seconds to take your acid tab that, that floats through the floats down through the chimney. Yeah. You know, yeah. So dropping I, from the sky. Yeah. So I, I have this, this thing right here. This is, this is just a, okay. a blog post and the, all of these things, grain of salt. So I'm just reading a little, a little, a uh, blog post by, by someone on, uh, a doesn't matter. So this person writes, so I've heard of connections that the grateful dead had with possible CIA people and heard some theories of them using LSD and other drugs as social engineering experiments. I met a guy in rehab years ago who toured with the dead and said they were all about devil worship. I understand the implications of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and that self-indulgement and aggrandizement is akin to, if not the modus operandi of much of Satanism. As you may know, the Grateful Dead originated in Palo Alto, California in the mid-60s. They were friends with many influential people, such as Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, various authors, and beatnik poets artists. PC originally tries LSD as part of university testing in, uh, in parentheses. I believe it was CIA sponsored through a university. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I believe Tom Wolf and Kesey himself stated close parentheses and was so impressed, possibly pressured to go around the country doing acid tests with the merry pranksters with the grateful dead as music, along with all sorts of lights and strange audio and visual and other artistic creative endeavors by the testers and testes. You can read all about that testes. You can read all about (laughs) that in Wolf's book, the electric Kool-Aid acid test. That is, you know, author Tom Wolf. Now continuing on, I myself do not believe that this is not me saying it. This is still this author of this blog post. I myself do not believe that they all had bad intentions. See, that's why I'm preferencing it. This person wrote it. I do believe they all had bad intentions. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) I do not believe they all had bad intentions when doing this and later throughout their touring. And I personally have done tons of LSD mushrooms, DMT, various other psychedelics and other narcotic substances. And of course, cannabis, but I no longer do hard drugs anymore as it is not conductive to my situation. Although I will still take psychedelics when I feel I do not abuse them and take them in a spiritual manner. I cannot smoke cannabis or do anything else for the time being. Drugs with all the situations that I've ended up in good and bad alike have really helped me to grow and learn. I would have been on top of the world growing medical cannabis commercially, making crazy money. And I've been a hitchhiking Dharma bum, dirty kid on and off the streets for almost eight years with breaks here and there and in between up and in the mountains and other places, been to 45 states, et cetera. Wait, who is this guy you're talking about? It's just some guy. This person is anonymous. All right. Anyway, okay. back onto the topic. I know that Bob Weir was the adopted black sheep of the family. Now this is the, the Grateful okay, Dead okay. from the Grateful Dead was the adopted black sheep of the family involved with the government military. And that he has officially been to Bohemian Grove in the later years of his life, maybe for longer. I also saw somewhere 
an article that mentioned documents stating that the Grateful Dead were CIA assets. And I've seen this several times. I've never seen anything concrete, but I've seen it come up multiple times. The Grateful Dead's album covers, as well as some songs, have many occult symbols and references, as well as how their name can be taken depending on how you look at it. Optimistically or otherwise, since we create our own reality to an extent, it's a very druggy thing to say, many things are left up to us to decide. We can choose to look for the gold in between black and white, or choose to focus on one aspect more than another, hence the middle path or narrow path many teachers, prophets, etc. have talked about over the years. I made this post to have a discussion and to see if anyone had any further information they could point me to. That isn't some dudes on YouTube who simply choose to look at the negative possible aspects of the Grateful Dead work throughout the years and refuse to accept the possible aspect that maybe they did not have nefarious intent. I am a firm believer of love. Now, by the way, this is a drug addict (laughs) who drugs fried their brain and made them homeless and they're standing by all that stuff. I'm a firm believer of love and that as a species, we will not evolve further until we all just come out, accept each other and responsibility for our actions. Maybe then send all the psychopaths to an island or out into space or something. Yeah. Psychopaths like you dingus. I want to believe that it is a possibility (laughs) that they are perhaps individuals within the band knew what they were doing, but they took the bad along with the good because of the incredible power that LSD and other drugs can have to help people awaken. Oh, and how yeah. and how people touring and meeting like-minded people all over the country could help change the world for good along with the bad. Perhaps Jerry was such a bad heroin addict, not just because heroin feels amazing and because he was a rock star who toured for 30 years, but because he knew the negative aspect of his or others within the band's action and was numbing himself. Just speculation, but ellipses. Any discussion is welcome, but please, as I expect you to have already since you're on blah, blah, blah. Keep an open mind. (laughs) TLDR. Is it possible that the grateful dead were CIA or other government assets with nefarious intentions, or were they aware of the duality of nature and just on a mission to spread music, peace and love where available. And where I push back is that latter half because all these bands came out around the same time. They're all involved with high ranking government or military officials. And out of nowhere, they all become massive megastars and they're all directly responsible for a generation just doing hard drugs. While, while the country is being changed on every yeah. single fundamental level, the people that had the numbers and the power to stop it we're all getting wasted on drugs. You know, and the ones I, that weren't were were <laughs> sent to Vietnam and killed. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. And you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily call this pushback, but I would say that to to the people listening, it's like you're not dumb for falling for it because you're human. And this Everybody stuff is did. designed Everybody to, did. it's designed to trick humans. It's like it's like it's like ant poison or whatever. Like you put that out for the ants and they don't know they're taking it, ingesting it and bringing it back to the little colonies and killing everyone. Like it's designed to trick them. Like I'm not calling you ants or rats or whatever, but like there are human traps. We have human traps. We, we, (laughs) DJ and myself have fallen for plenty of ops 
and, and oh, yeah. you have too. We we've all done it. You have no idea how much of this stuff was put in front of you mm. and you just believed it was as it was presented to you as. They they handed you a, a revolver and said this is an ear cleaner. And you just believe them because mm-hmm. you're human. You had no yeah. reason to believe that the person was trying to get you to put a gun in to your ear and pull the trigger. Dude. That, that, that's, that's the story of, of this, this world for the last 70 or so years. Yeah. And to continue on with a little bit of what that post was talking about, about those acid tests. It didn't mention that Owsley had been with the dead from the band's earliest days as right. both a fi- as both a financial backer and as their sound engineer. Yeah, see, th- and this is this is where I push back against that person saying like, "Oh, I believe in love. I look at the good <laughs> side." It's like, no, no, no. You're not looking at the good side. You're you are in denial. Mm-hmm, yeah, because because you you hear this and that and whatever and what these people do. Let's say you you really like. Uh, Kevin Spacey, like you, he's such a great (laughs) actor. And then when those allegations first come out and you're like, nah, nah, I don't believe that, but uh, I don't, nah, nah. And all you need to do is just, you just do a little looking and then you'll find that these, these allegations against him, they're not new. They've been around forever. Mm -hmm. It's just people that ran cover for him because he was a big star. That's, that's how these things work. So they, they rely on you to look past any controversy because you anchor your entire personality to these, these corporate products. And that's what the grateful dead were. I knew who the grateful dead were for years before I heard a single one of their songs. Did you know the the grateful dead have only had one top 40 single? I did not know that. Yeah, and 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 it was in 1989. I've heard about Deadheads and how it's like you just get in a, a bus and that would be like your summers go tour or whatever. You know, isn't that what they yep. would do? The, yeah, the they Deadheads. would. They, they would follow the Grateful Dead the entire <laughs> tour. They would. They would even do it for for even their whole life. Wow. Yeah, people yeah. they were di- they were diehard Grateful Dead fans, and you know, like that. If that's your thing, like okay, that's your thing. I'm not I'm not going to pass judgment. I'm going to keep that all to myself. But the point is, if that is your thing, and you start hearing negative things about what you've anchored your life to, mm-hmm. you're going to look for excuses for why that's not true, or you're going to come up with copes for why it's still okay. And then when the more evidence is presented, you're going to keep trying to find ways to disprove that instead of just accepting the reality. Now, I, I don't know about the, the grateful dead were into like satanic sacrifice and whatever. I don't know. See with a lot of that stuff, I don't believe a lot of those people that are in the media industry, like through, through satanic sacrifices, it gives them sexual powers. I don't know about that, but I do believe that they believe they do. Mm. 
which it doesn't matter if, if these people have the, the, the third eye growing and then they have the, the second sight, the whispering eye. Well, some of them have that maybe 50%, (laughs) but uh, that, that whole, like open your inner eye, you take DMT and you can, you, you'll go to your mind. Yeah. It doesn't matter if that's true. They believe it's real. Well, it's spiritual to them. That's their spirituality. That's their religion. Yes. Yeah. But their religion and, uh, their religion is Satanism. Bunk. Well, it's Satanism. Yeah. It's just pure evil. So the, cause this person is saying this stuff. They don't even know about, uh, Augustus Owsley Stanley no. third, <laughs> no. like, Oh, were they just going along with it? Literally their sound engineer was a drug manufacturer from, from, like the from, a, <laughs> from, from a family of government officials government. Yep. who also government. had a stint in the air force. Mm-hmm. But go yeah, on. It, it's interesting. Owsley is literally credited with numerous electronic innovations that changed the way live rock music was presented to the masses. Isn't that interesting? Just uh, that alone. And likely not in a good way. Literally. Given that his a work drug was... Drug manufacturer. <laughs> drug manufacturer. He manufactured uh, yeah. meth and acid. Mm-hmm. At the same time. And but given that time. his work... Uh, his my work technician <laughs> four my million wife. tabs of acid my Man. work the the bear the bear's work as the a bear technician <laughs> undoubtedly drew heavily upon his military training there it is that's all i had there oh he actually developed oh he even did even worser stuff well this is good so he did six <laughs> well before what? that he okay you okay you know the grateful dead logo the little skull thing Mm-hmm. He designed that. Uh, he's everywhere. He, yeah. he is the Grateful Dead. He 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 is yeah. He's the 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 core of the Grateful Dead. He is the soul of it. Ah, that's crazy. Yes, that's crazy. So in 1967, Owsley unleashed on the hate a particularly nasty hallucinogen known as STP, Stone Temple Develop- Pilots. Yeah, yeah, Stone Temple Pilots, the hallucinogen. So STP is developed by the friendly folks at Dow Chemical. STP had been tested extensively at Frank Zappa's former home, the Edgewood Arsenal, as a possible biowarfare agent before being distributed to hippies as a recreational drug. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Stone Temple Pilots got their name from that drug. That's probably true it's not a bad guess so owsley reportedly obtained the recipe from alexander shulgin a former harvard man who developed a keen interest in psychopharmacology that's a good word while serving in the u.s navy so he developed an interest in psychopharmacology while serving in the u.s navy shulgin <laughs> worked for many years as senior research chemist at dow and later worked very closely with the dea and let's see here. Let's try to finish off Mr. Owsley here. 1970, Owsley began serving time after conviction on drug charges. That time was served, appropriately enough, at Terminal Island Federal Correctional Institution, the very same prison that had, just a few years earlier, housed both Charlie Manson and the Flying Burrito Brothers road manager, Phil Kaufman. 
And a few years later, it would be also home to both Timothy uh, Timothy Leary and his alleged nemesis, G. Gordon Liddy. Uh, after his release, Owsley continued to work as a sound technician, eventually graduating to a new medium, television. Oh, wonderful. Hmm. Uh, he, so <laughs> Owsley eventually moved to Australia in the 1980s, becoming a naturalized citizen in 1996. On March 12, 2012, the aging chemist was reportedly killed in an automobile 2011. accident. 2011. Is it 2011? 2011. Oh. Uh, apparently, his car veered off the road in a storm and plowed into some tree. That is Augustus. Not Augustus Gloop. Nope. Augustus. Nope. 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 The, the wrong the wrong Augustus. Nope. Not as likable, this one. No, he is a little nefarious. But yeah. apparently, if you know your 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 earlier years are loving this band and seeing them and taking acid and realizing, you know, you're going to defend that they were nefarious. <laughs> well, yeah, because you if you you don't you want to take accountability. Yeah, you hitch your whole personality to it, and then you find out, oh, this thing that I love was manufactured by the government to get people to waste their life taking drugs. It was supposed to be a bio-warfare weapon. Ah, well, I'll just give it to the hippies. They'll no, like we'll it. give it to people and and we'll turn them into hippies. Mm. They didn't no. give it to the hippies. They no, you're turned right. them into they cre- hippies. They created hippies. Yeah, no, you're right. Because like I said earlier in the beginning, they want the ruling class wants people to be easier to be to manage. Yeah. There's nothing easier to manage than someone who's checked like, out from reality on drugs. Yeah, do you think a hippie gives uh, any of these uh, a governor um, competition there's no competition there they don't want free thinkers they don't want that they want you you know they want you <laughs> sedated yes exactly now now they, they've moved on so now it's benzodiazepines and, and mm-hmm. antidepressants like they yeah, you're now, still now being it's not just now it's not just recreation it's, it's a prescription yeah, yeah. You you can't function without this. You know, unless what, unless I, unless, we, I, unless we sedate you, unless we shoot you up full of Thorazine, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have problems. And this guy who's got all the sound technician stuff, and then he ventured into television, getting both medias. You know, when you invade a country, the first thing they tell the military is to capture the Control communications. The airwaves. Yes. That's the first thing you do is you get control of the communication. Yes. And that way all the news is managed. You know, (laughs) that's how you get engineered opinions. Yeah. People, Um, people. Okay. Have you ever seen that movie Zodiac? I have. You, you reminded me of it when you brought up the San Francisco uh, Chronicle earlier. Oh, but there, there's one moment where a guy says, oh gosh, now everyone's going to believe it. And, uh, he's like, what, who's going to think this is real? And the guy says, you know how I know it's real? Cause I saw it on TV because people see it on TV. They automatically give it more power than it deserves. Yeah, it gives a life to them, I guess. Yeah. Yes. It burns to, in their to, memory to everyone because television is important. If you're on television, you are important. You got there. If you're on any screen, you have been deemed by society to be an important person. So all the people, 
that work their blue collar jobs. They turn on the TV after a long work day. These people are talking to me. They're telling me the truth. They're giving, they're giving me what's real. So yeah, they want, <laughs> they want the best for me. They, they got yeah. my best interests in mind. See, look, look at them. They're really working hard. Yeah. These, these millionaires whose job is to read a teleprompter. Yeah. They, their life is so hard that they're just trying to make things easier for me. So I better go buy things to, to lower my quality of life, to make theirs a little better. They don't have enough yachts and private jets. So do you know about the, um, the beginnings of the grateful dead? Um, probably not besides Augustus. Besides Augustus. So the grateful dead is not from Laurel Canyon. Okay. So they're, they're from the Bay Alta, area, right? Yes, yeah. They're from the Stanford. Ba- yeah. They're from the Bay area, which, you know, that when you think of hippies, you, you probably are thinking more like Berkeley and yeah. San Francisco rather than Los Angeles. Los Angeles seems like a completely different mentality, but nope, that's where the hippies were born. But the Grateful Dead, they started in San Francisco. And they probably were pretty instrumental in bringing a lot of the degenerate culture that San Francisco is now known for to the area, but they Mm -hmm. were originally called the warlocks. Okay. Now they eventually had to change their name because they were building up a following. And this may have coincided with the signing of their, their, the record deal with, uh, Warner brothers. It, this was in 1967. Now this is what makes them a little bit different is they started in 65. So their first record didn't come out till 67. And most of these musical acts, they started and had not just their first record, but a number one record in the same year. And sometimes within months of each other. Mm-hmm. So the grateful dead still did build up a bit of a following. Now they were originally called the Warlocks and apparently they had to change their name because there was another band called the Warlocks and, uh, a similar thing happened to the Velvet Underground because they were also called the Warlocks. Now this is where, uh, things get a little odd. So they, they built up their following and a guy joined the band named Phil Lesh. Now Phil Lesh ended up being one of the more important members of the Grateful Dead. Now he was not a songwriter or a a composer. He he co-wrote a a few songs. Uh, It's some, some that people say are, Oh, those are some of their best songs, but who knows what people actually contributed because Phil Lesh would end up becoming the bass player. Now, anyone who's ever played an instrument, they know that the bass is, it is the easiest instrument to play it, to play the guitar. Well, it's, it's much harder than playing this kind of bass. Now, Phil Lesh would eventually go on to be known as, oh, well, he might as well be as much a lead as Jerry Garcia, because the bass was so prominent. <laughs> Phil Lesh, he was a violinist. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He did not know how to play bass. That's kind of like 
really because Chris Hillman for the birds only knew how to play the mandolin and they're like, all right, we'll give you a bass. But he was a really good mandolin player. But anyways, you continue with your violin. Yeah. And well, (laughs) the thing is Phil Lesh, he, he met Jerry Garcia somewhere. I'm not, I'm not sure. Just at some point he, he, he worked for a radio station as a recording engineer and he, he met Jerry Garcia. I don't know how, but just while he was working as a recording engineer for a radio station, which, you know, media, he, he meets Jerry Garcia and they are is complete polar opposite as far as musical interests, but they become friends. And then eventually he's asked to join the Grateful Dead as their bass player, despite not being a bassist and they were already an established band. So they had their following already. Now, Phil Lesh is someone who I have heard multiple times is an actual CIA agent. Oh, okay. I've, I've never seen anything concrete in that. He worked for the post office. That's is, is much like guaranteed government work as possible. But this is a name that I've, I've seen pop up over and over when talking about government agents in the Laurel Canyon scenes, Phil Lesh in the actual CIA. So we got Phil Lesh who is, he's considered a founding member of the Grateful Dead. So they, he wasn't a member when they were the Warlocks, but he joined eventually. And, uh, I believe he, he, it was at his house where they came up with the name Grateful Dead. It's, uh, so it's something like that. Like he, he was there for when they chose the name Grateful Dead, which some suggest is some kind of satanic Illuminati reference. I'm not sure, but to me, it's more, this is just another guy who he couldn't play the instrument and then they brought him in, but he was, he was working at a radio station meets Jerry Garcia and then somehow latches on to him. Despite like, imagine you're in like a punk rock band and you meet someone from, let's say, uh, like a synth wave band. And you're like, yeah, you should play, uh, you you should play drums on my band's album. And then that's just how it is. Yeah, that makes sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but I know what you're saying. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but yeah. So this guy yeah, play, plays violin, does not play the same music as Jerry Garcia, and then they just bring him into this established band, which is a growing band, uh, to play bass. So we got Phil Lesh, and we got uh, The Bear. We have, a, we have a, an alleged conspiracy or alleged, alleged CIA. I mean, it's all a conspiracy. We have an alleged CIA no. operative and a drug manufacturer. Now, the thing about Phil Lesh, though, the, the most interesting thing about him is he is Courtney Love's godfather. Oh, that's really bizarre. Yes. So, um, 
Courtney Love's father, Hank Harrison, went to college with Lesh and was his roommate and was the manager for the Warlocks for a small period of time. And then Phil Lesh is her godfather. Now, Courtney Love has ties to many of yes. the the late 80s early 90s bands that really emerged as the top of rock and roll obviously she's tied to Nirvana mm-hmm. but she's also tied to Faith No More she is tied to Smashing Pumpkins i'm sure that you can find her having even deeper incestuous relationships with other people but this guy who was the bass player for no reason of one of the most iconic bands of all time is the godfather of the wife of perhaps the biggest rock and roll group of the 90s. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> when it's all the same people. Yes. <sighs> I had no idea it was this deep too. This, yeah. I guess that's and, why they call it a, a deep dive. But yes. I mean, it's and, deeper than that. And the thing <laughs> is, we could keep going. We could hmm. keep going with everyone, but eventually it's just going to come down to like, did you know also this and this and this? And it's not, it's not so much uh, of an informative uh, web anymore. And then it's, it's, it's just individual strands that, that it just branches off into nowhere. But I think that the next episode is just, it's going to be the last in this entire thing. And maybe in the future, we'll talk about more Laurel Canyon stuff. If it is pertinent to what we're talking about at the time, but we could keep going. Mm-hmm. but we're just gonna we're gonna wrap it all up next week and that's that and that's just that's gonna be it and we'll put the final put the final stamp yes on this on this whole series and the whole point of everything so stay tuned and we will see you at the conclusion <laughs> <laughs>